All right, well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you today. This uh, is something we've been doing. I think this is our, our second one of these panel discussions. So uh, as most of you know, we're doing a class uh, in our adult Bible class on biblical doctrine. And Stephen Parkin suggested that at the end of each section that we sort of stop and give some time to deal with some questions that may have come up along the way. And this also gives us an opportunity to sort of pause and reflect on the things that we've been looking at. Uh, there's been a lot of truth that we've been sort of dumping out in these lessons. And it's good for us to stop and pause and reflect on what it is we've been looking at and sort of chew on that for a little bit. So there will be an opportunity for you guys to ask questions this morning if you'd like to do that. We have a few questions we'd like to throw out and discuss as well. Um, we can't promise you that we'll answer every question, um, especially when dealing with things like the providence of God and the Trinity and simple matters like that. Um, you will very quickly probably take us to the end of our knowledge and understanding. Um, but that's, that's not a bad thing. So we're not up here to be the experts, but rather just to facilitate um, a time of reflecting on what we've covered and give a chance to speak to a few questions you may have and maybe some questions we didn't get a chance to address um, during, during our, our teaching session. So um, let's pause and pray, and we'll jump into our, our discussion this morning. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you this morning thankful that you are a God who reveals himself in truth. You've given us your word. You have clothed yourself in flesh and dwelt among us, showing us your grace and truth and glory. Lord, as we study your word and seek to understand uh, what it teaches us about you, please give us a humble heart to recognize our limitations and to receive everything that you've revealed about yourself. Give us wisdom this morning, and I pray that our time together would be uh, for the building up of your saints and the honor of your name. Amen. So just a matter of brief review, we've been covering this idea of theology proper, which is technical word for the doctrine of God. <clears throat> and the first lesson was Scott Huffman. He talked about the existence of God, specifically the knowability and incomprehensibility of God. Uh, following that, Kerry Wilson helped us uh, to get an understanding of God's nature, that God is spirit. And Kerry gave us a brief overview of the attributes of God. Uh, Stephen, who's not with us this morning, gave us a lesson on the Trinity of God, that God is three persons in one being. We serve a triune God. And then I taught a lesson on the doctrines of creation and providence, that God makes all things and then upholds and governs those things which he has made. And then Scott got to go again in this section and last week dealt with the problem of evil, what's sometimes referred to as theodicy. If God is good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist? Why do bad things happen? So those are the, the topics we've covered. And Stephen uh, isn't here to sort of answer some of the questions regarding the Trinity. So I'm going to try to step in and, and help speak to some of those questions. But these guys are prepared uh, to, to speak to some of the questions on other topics. Um, and I'm going to sort of for, function as our moderator this morning. So uh, be thinking of questions you'd like to ask, and as you think of those, you can sort of come up to the mic, and as you do that, I'd like to just start off um, our discussion with this point. Scott, you mentioned at the beginning of your lesson on the problem of evil, this verse from Deuteronomy, um, which is familiar to many of us. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed re belong to us and to our children. And that's a verse we often go to, and you warned us against going there too quickly, but there's also a time and a place to go there. So as we think about doctrines like the, the triune nature of God, the existence of God, his eternality, 
I mean, think about a God who never had a beginning. Uh, think about a God who is unchanging, who's never becoming anything. Those things are hard for us to grasp when we think about God's complete sovereignty over all things, yet man's responsibility for the choices that he makes. I mean, these are things that take us to the edge. So, so how do you bring in this idea of mystery, that word, when you're talking about the problem of evil? Or maybe, Carrie, when we're talking about the existence of God, um, how, how do you, how do you what, what's the right way to sort of approach those things? I would say that certainly... And this, we might turn, I think we didn't turn this on. That now it'll work. Okay. I would certainly say that we acknowledge in Scripture that um, God has said that my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than yours, and we all acknowledge that as Christians, that there are certain things that you alluded to, like the Trinity, um, that are hard to completely understand in our human finite mindset. And so we know that there are many things that uh, uh, may not be revealed to us until uh, the eternal state of heaven. However, and this is what I love about this whole series that we're going through, systematic theology, which we've always said seeks to answer the question, what does the Bible in its entirety say about one particular topic or theme? And so what I believe is a really good exercise in going through this whole lesson is that we are to be Berean and search the scriptures and find out when we have a scripture that's hard to understand or interpret do we interpret the rest of Scripture through that one little lens, or can we take a full entire orbed view mm-hmm. of Scripture to help us interpret that one difficult Scripture? Mm-hmm. And so in things like the existence of evil, why does God allow evil to exist? Like I said, we could do the Deuteronomy 29, 29 and just punt and say some things are just the mysteries of God, but um, I do think we can do a lot better. And so this whole series has been good for me as we go through these different topics, not to let that be good enough to find out what does the scripture truly say, because it is the word of God. He has revealed truth to us. And um, I, for one, have learned a tremendous amount through teaching through these lessons and uh, finding out some of the, the answers that he gives us to these mm-hmm. questions. What would you say, Carrie, um, is the right understanding of mystery? When we talk about the attributes of God, his nature, you talk to us about how God is spirit, um, how would you say humility plays into that in us seeking to know God? I think humility, um, humility and, and fear, a right fear, are kind of the natural outgrowths of a, of a solid understanding of, of that doctrine of, of the mystery of God or what, what would be called his incomprehensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that is kind of the starting point. Um, and it's important for that piece to be there, which is why Jesus, you know, in introducing the knowledge of God uh, to the Samaritan woman said, God is a spirit. Um, and it, it inspires that humility to recognize that I'm dependent upon um, this God who is a spirit to awaken my spirit to worship him and to know him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, I would say it's, it's absolutely essential, but it's also important that it not become um, a foil um, uh, kind of a, a safe place to run and hide when we're faced with, you know, doctrines and truths that we may not personally be comfortable with. Mm. Um, so it's important not to to misuse uh, that doctrine just to um, kind of uh, run back to when we when we get uncomfortable. Yeah, because we can do that and sort of give it this veneer of humility and just say it's a mystery, but 
while there's a right level of humility acknowledging my mind has limits, my ability to comprehend God has limits, it's not humble to say, God said something about this, but I don't want to think about it. It's humble for us to receive everything that God has given us in its fullness and to affirm what scripture affirms. Yeah. Even the things like you said that are hard for us that, we, that, that may not be preferable for us to dwell on or think about. So yeah, I think just it's good that we keep that idea of God is knowable, yet he's incomprehensible. There is a limit to our knowledge. There is a sense of mystery with these things with the Trinity, with God's sovereignty, uh, with his existence. Um, but there are things God has revealed. And it's not humble for us to ignore what God has said and just say everything's mystery and sort of tap out too soon. So we want to go everywhere scripture takes us, no further. But also we want to not stop short of what scripture says. So any questions you guys have over, over these topics from the last several weeks? Um, creation and providence, the problem of evil, uh, the existence of God, his attributes, the doctrine of the Trinity. Any, any questions that you guys wanted to bring to the table? Otherwise, I have a few written down to talk about. I actually have one. If, if I could ask while we wait for people to, to come up here, um, because I sit and listen to these lessons too, and I believe Stephen gave us a, kind of a diagram of the Trinity and I thought, well, that's pretty good, but I've always read that uh, there's no diagram, two-dimensional diagram that mm -hmm. can fully describe a triune God. So I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on that? Can, can any depiction of, of God, the, tri the triune God, fully give us a good idea of what Trinity means? So Stephen's not here, but I'm going to defend him a little bit and, and, and say that I don't think he was trying to give us a full definition, description, representation of God in, in his fullness. I think the, the simple point he was, simple, the singular point he was trying to make was this idea of God's plurality, that there are three persons, unity, there's one God, and equality, that all three are equally God. And so that, that one point, I think that diagram is a faithful representation of that. But you're right to say that there's not, there's not a good analogy or illustration for the Trinity. People try to say, well, it's like water. There's, you know, there's, and it's steam and ice and then it's liquid form. But that falls far short. That's modalism. You know, that God kind of exists in three different forms. Um, you know, people use other illustrations like, well, I'm a father and a husband and a son. But that also falls short in some very important ways. So we want to be very careful with illustrations of the Trinity. Be very careful with illustrations of God because God is infinite. There's nothing like him. Um, he's unique. Carrie, you talked about God's holiness being, being different. There's, there's nothing we can really compare him to in this, in this world. So I do think it's appropriate to, to kind of cautiously illustrate some things the way Stephen did, but we should never claim that we've perfectly illustrated God because um, that's just beyond what we're able to do. So Carrie, I don't know if you'd add to that or not, but I, I do think we need to be careful about that. Okay. Other questions you guys may have? With uh, concurrence, can God be a second cause? Concurrence. So the definition of concurrence includes God working in, with, alongside, and through uh, the will of man. Can God be a second cause? 
I guess I would ask why, why that question. Is there a specific um, illustration of that you have in mind, like a certain instance? Okay, so I would say this. God never reacts to anything, if that makes sense, in, in, in the sense that it's something new that he didn't anticipate that wasn't already part of his divinely ordained plan. So God never has learned anything. God's never been surprised by anything. Um, so because God is preexistent, and we'll get to this idea uh, later when we talk about the doctrine of salvation, there's this idea of foreknowledge and predestination where God ordains all things, and so God being a second cause implies that he is operating underneath someone else's purpose or that he's operating in response to someone else's will. And so it's the first time I've heard it put that way, but, so I, I want to be not dogmatic on this, but I can't imagine a situation in which I would want to and, and where I think Scripture would, defi- would describe God as a secondary cause of something. We always want to acknowledge his supremacy and and absolute sovereignty over all things. And so providentially, the way that works itself out, God uses secondary causes. God uses means to accomplish his will. But I don't think we would describe God as a secondary cause. So in terms of flowing both ways, no. Concurrence doesn't mean that both wills or both intentions are on equal footing. God's is always um, superintending all of it. But not to the exclusion of the reality um, and the authenticity of that secondary cause and, and human will and agency. So, interesting question. I've not heard that one before. Yeah. And thank you guys for using the, the microphone. We know we can hear in the room, but this helps people who, are, who may listen later. I'm not a theologian, but I ponder a lot. So, um, the thing of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Our enemy was at one time among the hosts of heaven, and he rebelled. So I almost feel like this is in line with a concurrence thing. So God knew, yes, Mm -hmm. and um, I ponder these things till my mind is tangled. And Satan was, when he rebelled, kicked out along with others mm-hmm. who were his cohorts. Yes. So there is the source of evil. Yes. Okay. But God knew all that. <laughs> and that's where I get stuck. So if anyone could help me. Mm-hmm. So, Scott, how would you speak to that yeah. <laughs> since you taught that lesson? It's, it's an incredibly, I mean, we're, we're with you on this because, again, J.D. referred in the, in the kickoff to, you know, some of the mysteries. And, again, as, as human beings, there are certain things we just can't understand and grasp uh, because, like I mentioned in, in my first lesson on the knowability of God, we live in what we know as a cause and effect universe, where everything that has a, a beginning has a cause. And so we want, always want in our, our human minds to trace back the, the origin of everything. 
And uh, in this one particular area, uh, we just have to come under Scripture and realize, like the Scriptures we went through, that if God truly is holy, and we know what that word means, He is without sin. And we looked through a number of Scriptures that plainly said, in Him is found no evil. So we can't say that God is the author of evil. And we all know that and recognize that. So as we search the scriptures, we go to Ezekiel, and we found that Satan sinned. That's the first, the first sin that we see in the Bible. So that's where it originated. But again, your question is, well, well God knew this, so he is omniscient. Uh, he knows the future. So does that mean that he planned for this? And that's where we go, well... <laughs> Again, his ways are higher than our ways. Um, I certainly cannot, according to Scripture, lay uh, evil at his feet, even though he ordained its existence. Um, and so I'm, I'm with you on that, Connie. It's, it's a hard question. Um, and, and I would love to hear these other guys' well, thoughts on this as Carrie's well. Carrie's got an open Bible, so <laughs> there I think we, go. we should go over here. <laughs> So um, I, I agree with Scott in that this is, this is an area where our, our faith and our judgment is to be informed by the incomprehensibility of God, by his um, eternal, infinite uh, nature, and that there are things that are too high for us. So I would caution against um, perhaps becoming over-engaged um, uh, over in, in spending time on um, what has not been revealed. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, just as Scott had said, there, there are these um, kind of uh, hard and fast lines, these, these boundaries uh, and things that are, are, are present, doctrines revealed that keep us from, from straying into error, uh, things like believing that God could be um, uh, the initial cause of evil. Um, evil does not proceed from him. It is his opposite. Um, but at the same time, um, we can look at Scripture and see where um, evil and sin are a means that exist to display God's glory and his holiness. And he tells us this. Um, he is the light, and um, the darkness um, exists to tell us what the light is, is like. Um, so in Romans in chapter 8, um, Paul is, is dealing with some of these weighty issues. Um, but in regard to um, why does God uh, elect some and not others? Um, why uh, do the wicked exist, basically? So it's a it's an connected idea, connected question. And Paul says, what if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God demonstrates the glory and the beauty and the purity of his holiness um, in opposition to the evil that exists. And we could not know him or his glory um, in that way if there were no opposite to him. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so ultimately, that is the answer. Why would God ordain evil? Why would God create a world in which the things that we see going on around us and even the things we see going on inside of us, why would God will that kind of a world to exist? And the simple answer is he does so for his glory. And I think we all understand that in the sense that, okay, that's why he does it. The problem is we don't like it. And we don't agree that God has a right to do things for his glory. And that's where we need to, as it were, cover our mouth and step back for a moment. Um, you know, Carrie took us to Romans, if you flip over one page. At the end of this section, talking about God's salvation and sovereignty and judgment and salvation, all these things, Paul bursts out in worship, which really should be our response. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And this next phrase is a phrase we need to be able to say also. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We don't get to judge God or critique him because we can't fully understand it and we don't sit above him. And he says, he continues quoting scripture, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be glory forever, amen. If that's our heart, that we desire the glory of God, <clears throat> then we will be able to be at peace with these things. It doesn't mean we'll fully understand it, but we'll be at peace with it. We understand it's for God's glory, but we want to ask another question is, how does this glorify God? Why is this the best way to glorify God? And the, the arrogance of that question, the problem with that question is that we're sort of assuming if I can't imagine a good, a good enough reason to do this, then there must not be one. And that just shows our limits. Again, my, my wife, um, math education major, Calc 4, differential equations. I can't even read the problem, let alone solve it. I mean, I, college algebra was like as far as I got. So just because I can't understand the question or solve the problem doesn't mean that there's not a solution for it. I'm not the measure of all things. My mind, my rational ability is not the measure of truth. So just because I'm not able to understand something or perceive something um, doesn't mean it's not true. And so really it comes down to, I think, a place of humility, acknowledging whatever God does is right. He does all things for his glory. And he even tells us how some of this glorifies him. But there's certain questions we don't get answers to. And even if we did have the answer, we might not be able to understand it. <laughs> um, even if God did reveal some of those things to us, that doesn't mean our mind could contain it. So there is a level of humility that should lead us, rather than judgment of God, it should lead us to worship and awe, like Paul at the end of Romans 11. So, yeah, that's, that's an issue I think every Christian wrestles with. Every honest Christian will think about those things. And it's painful. Um, and so we don't minimize that. We don't gloss, it, you know, gloss over it and say, this is easy, what's your problem? It's for the glory of God, move on. No, we, we recognize that, but we have to say what Scripture says. Um, and this is what it says. And so we need to pray that God would bring our hearts in line with his word, where we would desire his glory like he does. So it's a good, good question. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So other questions? Yeah, go ahead, Adam. Adam, our unofficial elder. <laughs> so, uh, what is the hierarchy of submission within the Trinity? Like, is there a hierarchy? Of, like, is the Son submits to the Father? He's eternally begotten from the Father. What about the Holy Spirit? 
Good question. Um, Stephen's not here <clears throat> again, so I guess I'll speak to this one. I wouldn't use the word hierarchy because I think that communicates the wrong thing. Um, the son does the will of the father, but even in the way we think about submission, submission within the Godhead is different than human submission. Um, when, when I submit to governing authorities, um, I do, sometimes there's a conflict of the will, and I'm taking a w- my will and submitting it to their will. When my wife submits to my leadership in our home, it doesn't mean she always agrees with me. So within the triune Godhead, the will of the Son and the will of the Father, divinely speaking, are never at odds. So the submission that happens there, if we even use that word, is a little bit different. And there's not a hierarchy. It's not like Jesus wants one thing, but the Father wants another thing, and so he submits. And even what we see in the life of Christ when he's praying in the garden, you have to understand there's some of his human nature that's at play here. But even understanding his language that I think, I think we need to understand that Jesus did want what the Father wanted. Um, but even the language he's using is, is within, that, within that construct. So I wouldn't use the word hierarchy when describing the functional relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Son does the will of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Son and magnifies the Son. There are differences in relationship there and function, but we wouldn't use the word hierarchy because that language indicates that God the Father is like the real God and Jesus is the junior God and the Holy Spirit, you know, is like the intern who has to do it, you know, whatever his boss wants. And that's not how, how the Godhead works. So I'll, Stephen will probably talk more about this as he gets ready to teach on Christology. We're going to do a whole uh, section on the doctrine of Christ. And so thinking about Christ and his relationship to the Father and how his human nature plays into that, we'll get to some of those <clears throat> issues in upcoming weeks. Um, but yes, the Son does the will of the Father. But his submission to the Father is one where he is completely of one heart and mind. There's not a division of of, of wills that are in conflict within the Godhead. So I think we need to be even careful about how we think about that. Uh, first, a comment, and that is, this is incredible. I can't find a church anywhere that does this kind of stuff, so thank you. Um, and then, then a question that I'd like to hear you guys discuss you talked about the glory of God and being the simple answer, uh, which is true, and that's sufficient mm-hmm. a lot of Should times. Should be enough. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, would you guys discuss how you personally use the clear things of Scripture? You know, first of all, sola scriptura, that it's true, and use those truths to help you as you work through revealing the mysteries, you know, because mm-hmm. the mysteries are revealed. Christ was the mystery that was revealed with his incarnation versus what a guy I know says, what don't you understand about unfathomable? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so that idea, can you guys kind of discuss sure. that, how you use, like, the truth of the sovereignty of God, like Scott did such a good job last week, the truth of the sovereignty of God, you've got to accept that, that's true, it's what the Bible says, and that he's altogether good. So then somehow you've got to see where there must be some way that there's goodness mm-hmm. in the ultimate sense in the evil. I'd like to hear how you guys... Yeah. So really, this question is, it takes us back to our last section <clears throat> on bibliology. <clears throat> and there's, there's a reason why we started this class with the doctrine of Scripture. 
and then got to the doctrine of God. It's sort of a chicken and egg thing. A lot of systematic theologies will start with the doctrine of God because he's the one who reveals himself through scripture. And then others will start with scripture because that's where we learn about God and which one is right. I think, yes, like it's hard to put one in front of the other. But you're right. Our understanding of the nature of scripture influences how we, he, we wrestle this thing. So how would you guys connect this doctrine of scripture to how we arrive at this understanding of God? Carrie's in, in, the, in the concordance looking for specific things. So I, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned sola scriptura. And um, <clears throat> sometimes in the past, I've incorrectly interpreted that as solo scriptura. In other words, the only thing we have is, is scripture. And we referenced it. Carrie brought it up. I talked a little bit more about it. Is sola scriptura means primarily scripture. That's the primary place we go to. And uh, like J.D. mentioned, you know, do you start with... Uh, theology first or bibliology? If, if we, we talk about special versus general revelation, we understand special revelation is special because it it's reveals the way to salvation and it reveals who God is. So uh, that's where we have to start. Not that it's the only source of information about God. We have to recognize general revelation, which is revealed in general to all people, but it's not sufficient for, revel, uh, for uh, salvation. But it does tell us uh, quite a bit about God and his nature. Um, so, yeah, we begin with Scripture. We try to answer as, as much as we can from Scripture, knowing that it is prime, it is God's word. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts you want to add to that. I don't know how well I answered what you an- questioned there. Well, it speaks to the idea of presuppositions. Right? Ah. So I guess I, I would speak to, to your question kind of in the context of, of um, uh, Connie's um, pondering of these, of these mysteries and trying to understand because I do the same thing. Um, and so when, when there is this contemplation of the mysteries of God and there's this tension because... Um, there is always, um, you know, the the enemy who who wants to um, seed into our minds this thought that well maybe God isn't all good, um, or maybe there is some uh, something about Him that I'm to find out, and then I'll, you know, my trust will be broken. Or um, and th- so those doubts are sown into into our thinking uh, by the enemy, by our sinful flesh, and so. Um, in looking into those those things that are hidden, um, the scriptures um, are there, or at least what what I will do is um, kind of argue from the greater to the lesser. Uh, and in doing that, I I always have to go back to the God is statements that tell us about His His essential nature um, and what he has and what he is. And um, so those being, you know, in First John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Um, God is love. Um, and Jesus telling us that God is 
spirit. And so sort of setting up all of these um, <clears throat> guardrails that, that define sort of the, the playing field that, I'm, that I have to stay within um, and looking into those mysteries. So um, it, it's kind of like what God did with, with Job, I think, sometimes, because he was wrestling with, you know, all of these difficult questions um, that he didn't ha did not have the answers to, and they had to do with the, the mystery of God, this, this theodicy. And um, what God did with him was to present before him something that was so absolute and so concrete and so inescapable and irrefutable that was his sovereign power over creation and his goodness in his creation. Um, and then, then there was peace for Job because um, you see this truth about God and his nature and it informs everything else that you, you experience. Yeah, I would, I would tie what both of them said together. So scripture is our highest authority. Sola Scriptura means that it's not my experience, it's not my philosophical reasonings, it's not my observations you know, in the world that ultimately speak louder than the Bible to tell me about God. And what Scripture is, to Carrie's point, is God's self-revelation. So when God tells me who God is, who am I to say, no, you're not? So if I tell you I'm 5'11", and you come up to me and say, no, you're not, it's like, who are you to tell? Like, I'm the one who knows how tall I am. Like, so it, it's, it's obnoxious for us to, to look God in his face and say, you say this about yourself, but you're lying. So scripture is God's self-revelation about himself. So he, God is, God is, God is. We read within that, I am, I am, I am. So that's why scripture is our highest authority. So we come to it, trusting it as the ultimate authority. We don't arrive at this, this understanding of God purely from experience or reason or philosophical ponderings. No, this is received. This is not something we've constructed. It's received. And when God reveals something to us about himself in his word, then we must honor it and believe it. So that's where our doctrine of God comes from. It comes from God in his word. So that's why we go to scripture ultimately. And that doesn't mean that we don't ask philosophical questions or use rational abilities or even bring our experience to bear. We can see all that, but it's underneath this definitive word, the final word. You know, the Bible starts off with God said, and it was so in creation. And then we see Christ coming, the incarnate word. Hebrews tells us God has spoken to us through his son. Um, and so from start to finish, God speaks, and when he speaks, he reveals himself, and our task is to receive that. Um, this is not a, you know, you know, customize it by yourself. Here's all the parts. You put it together in you know, the way that makes most sense to you. It's simply received. Um, and that's humility and faith, is to honor everything God has said about himself. I, I would just tack on one more thing here, because you mentioned uh, presuppositionalism, presuming the word of God. And I think Adam Crestan alluded to, uh, you know, in your question about the, the triune God. And we all have to recognize, I think, that uh, when we come to faith, when we come to saving faith, that is a gift of God, and it is only through the Holy Spirit that we can accept the things of God. And uh, so that's to his glory. I came to a presuppositional uh, understanding of Scripture far differently than many people. Um, I, I allude to uh, Thomas, who I used to kind of critique. Thomas walked with Christ, and yet when Christ was resurrected, he said, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. 
And uh, so he was like me. I'm very much an evidentialist. I need to see the evidence, and then I'll believe. And uh, when I finally, you know, went through a ton of apologetics and I needed to see the evidence, my response was much the same as doubting Thomas when he saw Christ's wounds. He said, my Lord and my God. And I like to think that at that point, Thomas became a presuppositionalist. And for me, it was a long, arduous route of trying to take all the secular thought that I had been taught out of me to become a presuppositionalist. And it's, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christ said, uh, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit granted you the ability to presupp- presuppose the scripture in its entirety without all the circuitous nonsense that I had to go through. But either way, uh, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit, I, I believe, to become a yeah. presuppositionalist. And that's to the glory of God. Yeah, God is not our conclusion. He's the starting point. So Hebrews defines faith um, as believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that's what it means to believe. We start with God and work from there. And then you brought up this idea of how do we work through certain texts that are less clear and working that together with scripture. So again, if our presupposition is that God is and that God has spoken, then that doesn't automatically just solve every problem. Now we have to do the hard work of studying the scriptures and seeing which things are clear, uh, understanding hermeneutics and good interpretation um, and how all that works. And so we need to become better students of scripture and always be, sh- be sharpened in that, be renewing our mind. And the amazing thing is we can be believers for 40, 50, 60 years and keep learning as we continue to dive deeper into the word. So that's a never-ending process. And Kimberly, I think, had a question. I don't know if you still have one, if it was along the same lines, but... Might be totally different. I was going to throw you a pitch on omnicausality of God, but instead I'm going to do uh, open theism. So I think open okay. theism is the logical conclusion of Arminianism, but most Arminians aren't logically you know, consistent, which is a good thing. I wasn't when I was. Um, but do you think that open theism is something that somebody can truly hold to and still be a believer? Okay, good question. So can you hold to open theism and still be a true believer. So let's define open theism real quick. Um, did any of you guys touch on that? I'm trying to remember in your lesson. You did. You mentioned it briefly. How would you, how would you define that? If that m- might be a new term to some people. Um, so open theism, I would say, is the, is the um, resultant theological error that comes from not understanding um, the, the nature of God and his essence and the relationship of his perfections one to another. Um, so we affirm the doctrine of the simplicity of God or the unity of God. That is what, what perfections he has, he is, and to the infinite measure of his being. Um, he's, not, he's not simple in the sense that he's easily understood, but he's simple in the sense that in his, perfection, his perfections he is um, indivisible, uncompounded. Open theism... Um, falls into the trap of elevating one of his perfections or attributes above all others and then kind of allowing that um, disparity, that, that lopsidedness, and, and the, the, I think, aspect of God's nature that open theism elevates above all others would be his, his love um, and, and, and a sort of narrow understanding of it. Um, but your question was, can one be an open theist and still be saved? And I think I, I have to, um, in that regard, fall back on 
the um, the centrality and the essential nature of the gospel. Um, the gospel that must be believed is um, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he uh, died, was buried, and raised for our sins, and um, turning from our sins, I place my faith in that, and that is what saves me, not the you know 100% accuracy of my um, theological affirmation. So I would say that I believe open theists, there are, there are probably many um, who are saved, but there are also within open theism, you know, varying degrees of what doctrines of scripture are, um, are thrown out. Mm -hmm. So there are probably on the fringe of what could be described as open theism, those who would um, take issue with the, the deity of Christ or his virgin birth or um, his atoning work on the cross. And mm -hmm. so if, if those doctrines central to the gospel are thrown out as a part of the open theistic view, then no, those people are not saved. Yeah, yeah so to, to add to that, this idea of open theism, like Kerry said, privileges God's love <clears throat> over and against other things, and they end up denying the sovereignty of God, that God doesn't know the future, and he didn't plan it. That's the way they try to absolve God of this problem of evil. Say, oh, well, well, God didn't want this to happen, and he didn't plan this to happen, and he didn't know it was going to. So they would say that God is learning, that God is becoming, because he's anticipating the future, and he's better at guessing all the possible outcomes than we are, but he's not um, sovereign. And so that's really the, the ultimate denial of open theism. And in trying to help defend God's honor by absolving him of the problem of evil, you end up redefining God. So I would agree with Carrie. I think someone can be a Christian and believe some of these things, but I think that's probably someone who's brand new and doesn't really know. I don't think someone who's truly a Christian will remain an open theist. So someone may come to faith in Christ, understand the simple gospel, not know how all this fits together. And I think we'll mature and grow out of that pretty fast because if you keep believing in this open theism picture of God, despite the revelation of scripture, and despite the revelation of truth, it shows you don't actually know God and you're not believing in the true God. This is a God that is not reflected at all on the pages of scripture. It's actually a God of our own making. It's this God we've created in our minds and we're worshiping that instead of the true God. So, so some of these like long-term, like dyed-in-the-wool, committed open theists, I don't believe that's compatible with biblical Christianity. That doesn't mean that someone can't have some of this floating around in their mind to become a Christian and not realize. I think if they're truly a believer, that means they know God. And if they know God, they'll be receptive to what he says about himself. And if they're receptive to what God says about himself, they will reject open theism. So I don't think a Christian will remain in that doctrinal position. Um, but yeah, we don't want to add any definitions to the simple distilled truth of the gospel, like what Carrie said. Good. All right, well, we are actually out of time. If you've got more questions, let us know. Um, but Scott, would you pray for us and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing uh, all of us together to understand you more clearly. Father, thank you for your word that you've revealed to us. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would continue to um, submit to the authority of your word, that we would uh, seek to understand your word, um, to pray over your word, and that you would reveal its truth to us, Lord. Uh, help us to be, um, 
Help us to be more like Christ. Um, Help us to continue to search the scripture and understand these things, uh, that we might glorify you, that we might worship you more more, uh, holy and rightly. Uh, We ask your blessing on our uh, sermon today, Father, as the rest of uh, the worshipers come in here. And uh, we trust you in all things. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you've granted us. And it's in your son Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.